This is Josh Barrow. You're about to hear my conversation with Christine Emba and Rich Lowry about the death of George Floyd. We recorded this conversation Friday morning before former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, the officer shown in the video killing Floyd, was arrested and charged with murder and manslaughter. This conversation has been lightly edited to reflect that news, but some references may be outdated. Here's the show. This is Josh Barrow, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center, your civilized yet provocative antidote to the self-contained opinion bubbles that dominate political debate. It is the fourth week of May, and this week, George Floyd died at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, and the world saw the incident on video. Officer Derek Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck for at least seven minutes during the process of arresting him, disregarding his pleas that he could not breathe. Floyd's killing drew swift local and global outrage, and the city quickly fired the four responding officers involved in Floyd's arrest and death. But the city has erupted in protests, protests that have sometimes given way to riots and looting, in part due to dissatisfaction with local prosecutors' statements that they were still evaluating whether to charge the officers with any crimes. Minneapolis police even abandoned one of their precinct buildings as rioters lit it on fire. They also briefly arrested a CNN crew that was reporting on the disorder early Friday morning. On Friday afternoon, the Hennepin County attorney who oversees Minneapolis announced that former officer Chauvin had been arrested and charged with manslaughter and third-degree murder, and that they might bring further their charges later. This week, there have also been protests around the country, responding not just to Floyd's death, but to other recent deaths of African Americans under circumstances that reflect the racial inequity of our system of law enforcement. Notably, Breonna Taylor was shot dead in a no-knock raid on her home in Louisville in March, and Ahmaud Arbery was pursued and killed in February by three white vigilantes who said they believed him to be responsible for a burglary in southern Georgia. Arbery's killers weren't charged until the case drew statewide and national attention. To talk about all of that, let's bring in our left, right, and center panel. As always, I'm your center. I'm joined by Rich Lowry, editor of National Review on the right, and on the left, Christine Emba, columnist at The Washington Post. Hello. Hey, Josh. Hi, Josh. Christine, one thing that that sets these events in Minneapolis apart from me has been that I've seen no apparent attempt by the police unions or by public officials to defend the officers' actions here. But it seems to me that people are, for good reason, skeptical that there will be justice in this case and that there will be changes going forward in Minneapolis and around the country. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Josh. Actually, one of the things that has been uh, interesting to watch in this particular case um, and a very faint glimmer of hope, perhaps, is the quickness with which uh, not just government officials, but even police chiefs and police leaders from across the country uh, leapt to swiftly condemn what happened in this case, that there was video, what they saw. I think that a lot of this actually can be attributed to the focus drawn to these events by Black Lives Matter over the past several years. Uh, In the past, you would have, in the past even two years ago, I would say you would have seen uh, police chiefs uh, closing the line, government officials standing back and saying that there, you know, was not space or time to judge what happened. They didn't have enough information. Now, perhaps due to pressure from activists, due to increased notice being called to these events, due to the number of videos that are circulating now, you are seeing how obvious these events are and people do feel pushed and pressed to actually make statements uh, alluding to the truth. That said, statements are just statements. You know, police chiefs, government officials can tweet their thoughts and prayers as much as they like, uh, but the videos keep coming. We keep seeing this happen. Um, And I'm not sure what it's going to take to go from, wow, I'm sorry, to actually making the change. Rich, I, th- I think, you know, the, the to 
where the disagreement is in, in the public discourse here, and I think you've seen conservatives, you know, increasingly seeing, you know, these incidents as, you know, as, as, as a broad problem. The question is how structural the problem is, whether these are, you know, individual incidents where police do things that should be con- condemned, uh, pr- presumably should be prosecuted, um, or whether they, whether people on the right are starting to buy into some of these critiques that you're seeing from the left about this being a structural problem about race and policing in America. Uh, and if so, what what there is for policymakers to do about that? Well, first of all, it it looks as though there's just no excuse for the way the police uh, conducted this arrest. Um, usually, there is you know it's just a snippet of video, and you're missing. Well, not, I shouldn't say usually, but sometimes. Um, but this looks pretty clear. But uh, I'll put an asterisk on that. We should just let the process play itself out. The FBI is investigating. Uh, let's see what they find and when every fact is is um, uncovered, but it, it looks terrible. Um, I am I do not buy into the idea that there's systematic uh, police racism. If you look at police shootings um, comprehensively, they break down pretty clearly by race according to violent crime rates and the the interactions that police have uh, with various. Um, uh, suspects of various races. So, um, when, when there's uh, injustice, like it seems to occur in Minneapolis, by all means, throw the book at, at the cops. But I, I think the notion that we, we we live in some sort of racist police state is is a lie. Christine, I, I want to take the two parts of, of Rich's answer there. I, I, I want to talk first about the sort of letting the process play out, uh, which, you know, I, I certainly understand why it would be difficult uh, in a lot of cases for a district attorney to, you know, come out with charges immediately, even in a case where things look obvious. There's, you know, there, there are processes that have to be gone through. Uh, but it seems to me, you know, that's an easier argument to make in a place where people have a high level of trust in the government, uh, where they believe that the government will get around to justice. And so you can say to people, wait for the process to play itself out. Uh, I think that there are good reasons why a lot of people in, in Minneapolis and, and around the country, a lot of African Americans especially, do not have that level of trust. And that's that that's a problem for, you know, the, the system needs to be uh, adjusted in such a way that people can have that level of trust so those things can work themselves out. Right, exactly. Exactly. Um, And first, Rich, I think actually you were probably right in saying uh, usually, because at this point, as I think I ranted just uh, perhaps two or three weeks ago, this is a usual event. Uh, Basically, there's one of these cases often with video uh, once a week, if not more. Um, And yes, I, I think you're exactly right, Josh, in saying that, you know, waiting for the process to play out is not particularly appealing uh, to those who are waiting to see justice, because First of all, waiting for the process to play out uh, by nature notes that, well, this is just going to take some time. We're just going to like need to think about whether kneeling on somebody's neck until they die is wrong. Like It looks pretty bad, but why don't we look at it from all sides? You know, there's an obvious injustice here, and it rankles the spirit uh, to see people seeming to not take that seriously. And then when you say, you know, we're going to wait for Uh, things to play out. We want to wait for the system to play out. Look at how the system has played out so far. Uh, The shooting of Philando Castile in 2016. We waited for that to play out for over a year. And at the end of the process, the police officer who had shot a man in his car in front of his girlfriend and baby uh, was acquitted of charges. 
um, in many of these processes, waiting for the process to play out means that uh, charges are hid from public view, drawn out until as late as possible, and then police officers who have committed an obvious injustice are acquitted, are let go, uh, are perhaps fired or even put on administrative leave with pay. Nothing happens. We just wait and we wait and justice doesn't come. That's not an appealing process. Well, I don't know what the alternative is in the United States of America to process. I mean, that's that's an inherent part of our justice system. You need to investigate, you need to get all the facts um, and proceed according to the laws. You just don't have summary uh, arrests and executions of people. And to take the um, one of these famous instances, the shooting of um, uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, uh, if we just acted immediately on what we thought the truth was or what a lot of people thought or portrayed the truth was, there would have been a, a heinous miscarriage of justice. So our, our system affords a, a lot of protections for the rights of the accused uh, in any instance. And I, I don't know why anyone concerned with justice would want to shortchange that system. Well, it, it seems to me that the system builds in extra protections for the rights of the police. I mean, some of which are, are formalized legal protections from law or from court decisions like qualified immunity. It's extremely difficult to hold police accountable even when they violate people's legal and constitutional rights. You have to make an extremely high showing that the, poli- the police officer knew that what they were doing specifically was a violation of rights. It would seem to me that, you know, when police are given this extraordinary power to use the state's monopoly on violence, that they should have a, a greater level of accountability for whether that uh, that. that that power is used in, an, in a way that is just and that is legal. And it seems to me that it's often the opposite, that they, you know, it's, it's not just that they have the presumption of innocence that any person has in, in a legal proceeding. It's a presumption that they get to use this extraordinary power that they have in their own best judgment. And it is very difficult to review that judgment. Uh, Christine, did you have something, something to add? Yeah, I would also just say, I mean, repeating Rich's own words back to him that we don't have a process of summary arrests and executions in the United States. That's exactly what we have, actually. That's what we are seeing on tape. That's what we're seeing in George Floyd's death video, his snuff tape. This is what we're seeing day after day, week after week. This is what people are upset about. There are summary arrests. There are summary executions. They are done by the police, and they are done exclusively on Black people, it seems. And that is what people are upset about and what they want to see justice for. In fact, this should not be happening to anyone, Black or white. As Josh says, the police have a higher responsibility, in fact, to be uh, pursuing justice and proceeding appropriately in these cases, and they are the ones who seem to be doing the worst. Yes, we would like to see justice for all involved, but saying that some people should wait to see justice while the police carry on as they will doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Well, what I said is the process should play itself out, and you objected to that. So I I don't see what possible grounds there are not to have a a thorough investigation that hears from all sides, examines every piece of evidence, the motivations, and then charges accordingly. I'm really sort of speechless at at why there'd be any objection to that. And the logic leads to what we've seen. Uh, Of that point of view, we can't wait for the process to play out, leads to what we've seen in the streets of Minneapolis, which is total uh, mayhem. And sacking a police station, how does that advance the cause of justice? Rich, I don't think either of us is saying that there shouldn't be a legal process that plays out here. I'm just, do you understand why people in the African-American community in Minneapolis might not trust that that process is going to be fair and lead to justice here? 
Well, when I say we should let the process play out, why would there be any objection to that? I mean, Christine objected to it for... <laughs> it, she spent a whole answer saying, saying that was wrong. So I'm just saying I, I don't even understand that point of view. In fact, Rich, I don't think that you were understanding what I was saying in any way. Well, I, well, then you weren't very clear. I'm so sorry, Rich. Let me be more clear. I believe in justice. I think that a legal process should play out. I believe that justice should be at hand for all involved. I do think, however, that it's reasonable for Black populations in cities where justice is routinely not carried out to be frustrated, to wonder whether justice ever will come, to wish that the process didn't carry out for an excessive period of time, knowing that there would not be real resolution at the end. Of course justice should happen. That's what we want to see. We're wondering why it can't happen on a reasonable timeline. Rich, do you see why people in the community might not trust that process? That's a different point. Well, but I, I'm, I'm asking you that question. I'm asking you, do you, do, you see, do, you, do you see why people in that community might not trust that process? Yes, but the process has to play itself out. So that's what I said, and that's what was objected to. Christine, to Rich's point, and the, the legal process we have here is, is what's available. There are reasons that we, you know, we have a process before people get charged. What can be done by public officials, by community leaders in Minneapolis and around the country if we're trying to build trust in that system? What do you need to do to show people uh, that this will hold the police accountable when they commit crimes? Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to show them exactly that. Um, the process needs to be transparent. Uh, we need to, as I said, see the process proceed in a timely manner. It's very good, in fact, that the police officers who inflicted this act were summarily fired. That is, that's wonderful to see. And I think that that was a very positive move on the part of this department. I think that the public wants to know um, that changes will be made. I, I'm sorry, I, this is hard to discuss. Um, because it's, it's very, it's very difficult um, to imagine changes being made, not just to this particular de police department, um, but to the ongoing interactions between um, police and Black America, uh, to the ongoing and deeply rooted and frankly, deeply justified um, relationship of, you know, fear and discomfort between the Black community and police officers in the United States. This is a very, a very deep wound. I think for progress to be made going forward, uh, first of all, the police officers and the police system, police chiefs at large, will need to acknowledge the depth of these wounds, um, acknowledge where they have come from, uh, acknowledge that not just in a single incident uh, have police officers behaved inappropriately, but that in fact this is a pattern um, that there are reasons why citizens are afraid of and mistrustful of the police. Um, I think that this is a process that needed to have been started a, a long time ago. Uh, it's kind of impossible to take the police at their word when they say, this, this is the incident that will change things. 
when we know, in fact, that many, many, many other incidents like this happen every day um, and likely will continue to happen. Videos of a similar kind are emerging even as this crisis continues to develop. I think that the police will have to invest, invest in their relationships with the community, uh, invest in making proof of their dedication towards the truth and justice first before we can even be able to imagine a way forward. Let's take a break. I'll be back with Rich Lowry of National Review and Christine Emba of The Washington Post to talk about Joe Biden's campaign agenda. You're listening to Left, Right and Center. You're hearing from our Left, Right and Center, and we want to hear from you too. Tweet us at LRCKCRW and download the free KCRW app to listen to Left, Right and Center on demand. You know the Sugar Hill Gang for Rapper's Delight, one of the first ever rap songs. But when you consider the greatest rap albums of all time, it's hard to imagine anyone mentioning their first full length that dropped a year after, in 1980. But sometimes, legacy is not about the spark itself, but about the flame that spark causes. The Sugar Hill Gang, on Lost Notes, 1980, with me, Hanif Abdurraki. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm Josh Barrow of New York Magazine. On the right is Rich Lowry, editor of National Review. On the left is Christine Emba, columnist of the Washington Post. You might be forgiven for forgetting this, but America is in the middle of a presidential campaign. It's a campaign in which Joe Biden has had a consistent and solid lead of around six points. The coronavirus has changed many things about American life, but it has not materially moved the presidential horse race polls. It's pretty likely that in eight months' time, Joe Biden will be president. So what might he do if he is president. To talk about that, we're joined now by Matt Iglesias, senior reporter and co-founder of Vox.com, which is a sister publication to My Employer, New York Magazine. Matt also hosts The Weeds. Hello, Matt. Hi. Uh, Matt, so your your headline here is Joe Biden has a plan for that. Uh, and you say that contrary to his image, Joe Biden is running on the most progressive agenda ever for a Democratic presidential nominee. So what's so progressive about the agenda? You know, if you sort of look across the board, we're talking in Biden's policy agenda about a version of a public option for Obama care that's much more expansive than what House progressives put on the table. He's talking about doubling the minimum wage. He's talking about essentially quadrupling federal housing assistance. He's talking about doubling Pell Grants. Um, and so it's a it's a really big, actually, agenda. And it reflects the fact that, you know, Biden is a moderate Democrat. He's a mainstream Democrat. But that means he's a mainstream Democrat in 2020. And it's a political party that has become a sort of much more solidly progressive group than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And I think Biden's platform um, really reflects that, even though his profile is primarily as the guy who wasn't Bernie Sanders. Christine, what do you make of that? Did progressives get more than they thought out of this nomination? I'm not sure that we can say that. Um, I think that we would have to wait until uh, Biden won the presidency to see if they got anything at all apart from getting Trump out of office, which admittedly would be a huge progressive step forward. Um, I found the headline to your piece, Matt, actually rather amusing simply because, you know, Biden has a plan for that, uh, is of course the tagline of an actual progressive candidate, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who in fact uh, did have surprising and in some ways shockingly progressive plans. Saying that Joe Biden is, you know, the most progressive candidate that we have had so far is sort of like saying 2020 comes after 2012. Like, 
yes, factually, in fact, 2020 is a larger number than 2012. Uh, that says nothing about how large the number is uh, or how much of a difference it makes. Joe Biden is progressive if that means that he is, you know, trying to keep pace with the times, if he's more progressive than he, you know, might have been seen as being eight years ago. That doesn't mean that he is actually progressive in any real sense. Matt, do you do you think that's fair to Biden? I mean, did did he move only as left as as he needed to because the party moved? And and what does that mean in terms of, you know, likely outputs that you would see in a presidency? Because part of what I've struggled with watching these Democratic candidates is figuring out the extent to which different plans on the campaign trail mean different things that you can actually get through Congress or enact if you become president. Right. I mean, look, I, I think there's a certain like an ontological sense of like who is a true progressive, right? In which case to be a true progressive means that you are someone who who is on the left wing of the Democratic Party, who battles with the establishment. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is definitely somebody who is like that. Bernie Sanders is definitely somebody who is like that. Biden is not somebody who is like that, right? Uh, he is very comfortable with the Democratic leaders in Congress, with veterans of the Obama administration. His presidency would, to an extent, as he has said, be about bringing back the people who were running the country before Donald Trump's appointees were running the country. Uh, you know, as to is this as banal as saying 2020 comes after 2012? I, I think it's not that banal, though, because I think that the policy debate in the United States of America has shifted substantially to the left in a way that is important and consequential, and that you see this in the Republican Party moving away from entitlement cuts, the Democratic Party moving toward expansion of the public sector as the kind of baseline thing that even the moderate members do. And so it's, it's both true that Biden is not like a a leftist warrior who's overturning the apple cart, but he reflects a political consensus inside the Democratic Party, but to an extent inside the country uh, that has simply become further to the left than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Rich, it feels to me like the left has done something of a favor to Joe Biden in terms of the general election campaign, which is that, you know, we've come out of months of people calling Joe Biden a moderate sellout, which seems like it may pose some complications as the Trump campaign tries to decide what their message is going to be about Joe Biden. And it causes an issue if you're trying to say, you know, leftist Joe Biden with the most left wing Democratic presidential uh, platform ever, uh, that he can say, hey, look what look what they've been saying about me all through the primaries. Yeah, he's sort of been branded as a moderate, although he's never truly been a moderate. He's just always been wherever the center of gravity of the party is kind of smack in the middle of that. So as the party has moved to the left, he's moved to the left uh, as well. So uh, I, I think there'll still be attacks on him as you know, the, the, having the leftmost agenda of any Democratic candidate either. Um, but given how much we've heard about his moderation, given that he, he doesn't have a you know, wild-eyed demeanor, we'll see whether Trump can make that stick or not. Why don't we talk about concrete impacts from some of these policies that Joe Biden is running on? And Matt, the sort of the first thing you talk about in your piece is the minimum wage. Joe Biden is running on a $15 national minimum wage, which would more than double the existing minimum wage. But um, one of the big successes of progressive movements over the last decade has been increases in state and local minimum wages, uh, meaning that a lot of workers are already subject to minimum wages that are closer to $15 than to the $7.25 federal limit. So how big a deal is it uh, if there's some push toward a minimum wage that, you know, presumably doesn't end up 
at $15 federally after you get through the legislative sausage making. Uh, how big a deal is that for workers if there's some action on the minimum wage in his administration? I mean, I think it's still a very big deal for, you know, the people who are still in states with a minimum wage of, of $7.25 an hour. Uh, you know, I, you could say it's a, it's going to be a big deal in a, in a bad direction. Some people think these $15 an hour minimum wages have worked okay in sort of high wage coastal states. But when you bring them to West Virginia, Missouri, other places like that, maybe they'll be problems. Uh, but certainly there'll be some big winners from a change like that. You know, you're talking about millions of people there. I think, you know, your point, which I think is the most interesting one, is that how much actually happens is going to have so much more to do with what happens in the Senate elections than with the sort of putative contrast between Biden and more left-wing figures who were in the party. Uh, even if things go like really well for Democrats in November, you're going to be looking at someone like a Joe Manchin or a Kristen Sinema, most likely, as the sort of median senator. Um, those people are decidedly more moderate than Biden is. They are also just more electorally vulnerable. And it's going to be sort of up to them how far this stuff goes. I still think you will see pretty meaningful action on minimum wage, which, you know, Democrats have gotten really enthusiastic about, I, I think, in, in recent years. Um, maybe not all the way to 15, at least maybe not all the way immediately. But you're talking about a, a huge boost to people, uh, especially assuming, you know, we have people back in jobs at all. Christine, is that an argument for Joe Biden for, you know, a, a progressive agenda, which is to say that you, Democrats have gotten increasingly optimistic about the Senate map this year and, the, and their odds of taking back a slim majority in the Senate. Uh, and Joe Biden has run on his ability to work with senators to build legislative coalitions, talks about how he gathered the votes to pass the uh, Stimulus Act in 2009 to bring us out of the depths of the Great Recession. Um, and that in the primary, I think, got mocked a lot uh, by progressives, especially about the idea that Joe Biden was going to bring Republicans together as the Republican Party has gotten increasingly uh, polarized and Mitch McConnell has basically had an agenda of no. But, it, but if the task is to work with a majority of 51 or 52 Democratic senators to build coalitions within the party, isn't Biden better positioned than Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or, or any other of the, of the possible people who could have been the nominee to, to hold the party together and build the coalitions to actually pass something that moves policy to the left? I mean, if you're simply asking the question of, you know, who is better at bringing people together in coalitions, um, or whether Joe Biden, say, who is the nominee now, uh, is good at bringing people together in coalitions. Like, yes, of course, that is a skill that he has demonstrated. He is uh, a social person and a convener. Um, he loves to bring people to the table and get them to talk about things. But when we talk about getting actually progressive policies passed, um, it's not actually about necessarily just bringing people together to talk. It is about what the policies are. It is about what is progressive about what Joe Biden is proposing. Um, and to say whether Joe Biden will be able to bring a coalition together to pass helpfully progressive policies um, will really depend on who Biden has in his administration, who he has it as his advisors, what the policies are that he's bringing to the table. And when you look at some of the people who are advising uh, Joe Biden on so-called progressive policies right now, whether it's Rahm Emanuel or Jamie Dimon, 
uh, it's not necessarily confidence-inducing to say that what he brings to the table uh, once he's formed his coalition is going to be much of a change, much of a leap forward, let alone to the left. This is Elizabeth Warren, uh, one of her key arguments from the primary, right, about personnel as policy and who are these candidates surrounding themselves with. I'm actually interested in what both Matt and, and Rich have to say about that as you look at you know who Joe Biden would bring in. What, what do his personnel choices tell you about policy? We could have Matt first. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, there's a question of standards here, but I, I think it's pretty clear that Biden was vice president of the United States when Barack Obama was president and by and large would bring a similar or to an extent the exact same group of people in. Rahm Emanuel was White House chief of staff at the beginning of, of the Obama administration. That's obviously somebody Biden talks to about things. Uh, you know, Rahm's got a, a mixed bag, in my opinion. Uh, at the same time, you know, you look at what the Obama administration achieved in 2009-2010. Uh, there was this enormous increase in taxation of the wealthy. That money was plowed into a big subsidy for health care for low-income families. They passed a sweeping public lands bill. They, you know, did the stimulus. You can go down the list. Uh, but I-, I think this is actually the the point, right? I mean, Biden is not a decisive break in terms of personnel and concepts with what the Democratic Party has been before, but he represents an onward, leftward evolution of the Democratic Party, and I think in most respects of the Republican Party as well, toward a sort of bigger role for government in a more expansive welfare state. Yeah, I think that's right. I I revert to my prior point that center of gravity of the party has moved, so kind of standard issue Democrats are further to the left than where they were in the Obama years. And I as I've said in the show previously, I just think if if you really want progressive change, this uh, assuming Biden uh, can win when was and was the most electable of the of the Democratic field, this kind of the way you do it. You get get someone in office and then the, you push them to the left. You um, move the Overton window the, the way Bernie Sanders and a lot of others have on on various issues, and you form a consensus that's further to the left than it was previously, and then you pass it. And you know it might be a quarter a loaf, half a loaf. But you've moved the ball, and what you've done is very, very unlikely to be undone, especially if it's actually done through legislation. I just look at this, and I wonder about the extent to which voters and other political actors have essentially aesthetic interests here when they when they lay out, you know, what kind of candidate they want. And I and I think we saw this first with Republicans, uh, where a lot of what Trump has done is the, is the performance of conservatism uh, rather than policy change. Now, obviously, there have been policy changes under the Trump administration, but it seems to me, but a lot of the crowd pleasing stuff that he has done is not actually about changing the public policy of the United States. It's about statements that he makes. It's about ways that he affects the, the public conversation that drive liberals crazy and make a lot of conservatives happy, that that's sort of been the deliverable from Trump. And I'm wondering about the extent to which people are looking from that within for that within the Democratic Party. And I don't just mean progressives, although I think there is an element of people who, you know, what they really want is, is someone who they see fighting for progressive ideals, that that is an important deliverable alongside the actual policy changes themselves. I also think it's true for a lot of people who are looking for a moderate candidate, that basically they they like Biden's performance of moderation. They like the uh, the the image of a candidate who you know tries to to be less of a political flashpoint, who can maybe take the temperature down a few notches. And a lot of those voters, I think, are not necessarily bothered by the idea that Biden has moved to the left, even if he's moved to the left of where they perceive themselves as being. Because what they're also looking for is is the aesthetics here. Uh, Christine, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's an important argument, actually, and and a useful thing to note. 
I mean, one of the phrases that has dogged Joe Biden throughout the primaries and will continue to uh, is his statement to a room full of billionaires that nothing will fundamentally change. And some people are attracted to that. They are attracted to the idea that nothing will change, the understanding that things right now are basically okay. We can have some movement on the margins, but probably we should stay where we are. Um, Whether or not his policies lurch a little further to the left than they would have eight years ago, that's fundamentally the opposite of a progressive candidate, a progressive platform, a progressive statement, a progressive mindset. Um, I think what progressives are looking for, what many Democrats, uh, even moderate Democrats are looking for, is an understanding. Perhaps it's perhaps you could call it aesthetic um, because it doesn't necessarily deal with a specific piece of legislation in mind. Um, but it is a worldview, um, and worldviews are something that a president brings to the country. Uh, we're looking for a worldview and understanding that actually things fundamentally are not okay. That actually, fundamentally, big changes need to be made. Uh, that fundamentally, there is something wrong with the way that the United States is working. Uh, that the government is fundamentally not doing the job that it is meant to do to protect and serve uh, the people of the state. A progressive aesthetic or even a progressive idea would be acknowledging that something needs to change. Something needs to change for the better. Something needs to change soon. Something needs to change perhaps now. Um, And yeah, maybe that's not what Joe Biden is bringing to the table. Biden is saying to people on the level of affect and message and aesthetics that he can replace Donald Trump and bring back the best in America. Right. And that appeals to a certain set of people who feel like the country has gone off the rails under Trump. And what I think more left wing people want to hear is something like the underlying foundations of American society were rotten long before Trump came along and we're going to build a whole new house. Right. And in that sense, Biden is clearly a moderate. Right. He's going to try to bring back some of the excesses of Trumpism and sort of repolish America and make it shiny and new again, but not fundamentally alter it. So, Christine, in that context, what do you make of the coalition that Biden put together to win this primary? I mean, he, you know, he he won the Democratic primary electorate. He did especially well with African-American voters. Um, you, you laid out earlier in this show some reasons that, that African-Americans have to feel that the system of policing in the United States has been unjust and, and, and unaccountable for decades. Uh, some of the progressive policy agenda items, I think you can make a strong case that, that African-Americans stand to dis- to disproportionately benefit from structural changes in certain aspects of the system. So what do you make of African-American voters apparently having looked at that on average and said, you know, our preference is the candidate who's promising the more continuity message, the more return to normal message, rather than the big structural change message? Yeah, um, I think that that's actually a sort of different question. Um, I think that African-Americans in the United States Uh, for reasons that I probably don't need to explain on this show at this point, um, don't necessarily have reason to believe or expect um, that a huge wave of progress is going to overrun the country and suddenly make everything better for them. And so I think that African-Americans are used to a pragmatic voting style. Um, At this point, it's obvious that Joe Biden... Uh, would be a better candidate for African-Americans than Donald Trump, uh, who calls them thugs, 
uh, and seems to, you know, delight uh, in violence in their streets. Uh, and I think that's why African Americans voted for Joe Biden, because he's not Donald Trump. Let's take a break. I've been talking with Christine Embo of The Washington Post, Rich Lowry of National Review, and Matt Iglesias of Vox. We will be back to talk about the post office. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from all sides. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. Stream all episodes of Left, Right, and Center and our companion show, All the President's Lawyers, at kcrw.com slash podcasts or from the KCRW app. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, Josh Barrow. On the right is Rich Lowry, editor of National Review. On the left is Christine Emba, columnist at The Washington Post. And our special guest is Matt Iglesias of Vox. The Postal Service is one of many enterprises that faces significant financial distress due to the coronavirus crisis. The crisis has reduced volumes of mail and therefore reduced postal revenues. The post office says it could run out of cash in September if it doesn't get bailed out. This is creating an opportunity to settle already existing political fights over the post office. Democrats feel the post office has been overburdened with obligations to make up for retiree benefits that were not pre-funded in the past. Many of them would like to reconceptualize the post office back around a public service model where it would not necessarily be obligated to cover all its own expenses. Conservatives want the post office to behave even more like a private business than it already does. To that end, they would reduce the scope of the universal service obligation, which means it has to deliver to most addresses six days a week at a flat price for first-class mail. And the president is a particular hobby horse about Amazon, which he believes has gotten a sweetheart deal on shipping rates. The president, of course, doesn't like much of what's published in the Washington Post, which is owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. So, Matt, is the post office really at risk of running out of money? What are the stakes here? Uh, it, it seems like it at least potentially is. Um, you know, the, the Postal Service's sort of basic business model has been in decline for a long time, sort of separately from this accounting dispute that, you know, progressives are, are really jazzed up about. Obviously, there's less and less mail. Uh, they're not allowed to cut back services. And now as a result of the the pandemic, you know, volumes have gone down even further. And, and it seems to me, at least, like the Postal Service is in some very serious jeopardy unless something or other kind of happens. Um, but, you know, they could always sort of solve these problems problems by just delivering mail less frequently, uh, which is, I think, from a like wonk's perspective, the least interesting possible solution. But, you know, the, in some ways, the most natural response to the strict budgetary thing is to just not deliver mail six times a week. Rich, as Matt lays out there, I mean, one thing that you could do about financial troubles at the post office is reduce what the post office does, reduce, you know, get rid of six-day delivery, reduce the spectrum of money-losing services the post office offers. Uh, and that, I think, is a lot of conservatives' instinct, that basically the post office is a delivery business that happens to be owned by the government. But when you look at polling about the post office, people seem to have a really strong affection for it. The six-day delivery guarantee is very popular. It seems like the, the public view on the post office is that the post office is more than just a business, that it's some sort of public institution, and people have an attachment to some of the things 
things the post office is doing that are not as financially viable as they were in the past. Yeah, I have some sympathy for that affection. I feel it myself, especially during the the COVID crisis. It's been kind of stirring to to see the the kind of ridiculous little postal van come up to the the mailbox uh, every day faithfully. And it's, it's obviously a major national institution that has uh, uh, intertwined with history of this country. But it is uh, a money-losing uh, proposition. Uh, key aspects of its business are in decline. Uh, that's been accented during this crisis when business mail uh, has has fallen off a, a cliff. So I, I do think it needs to be radically changed. You've had some EU countries actually have some success with privatizing their postal services. Um, I mean, the probably clever ways you can come up with doing that while uh, still having um, some some mandates f- for the kind of, s- of services it would have to provide. But uh, I, I think the current model is, is likely not sustainable. Christine, what do, what do you say to that? Yeah, I would agree. I think that it, it has been uh, vivifying to see that some services are essential and some services will still uh, continue even when, you know, the time is against them. Um, I do think that we have to acknowledge, though, that the Postal Service is an essential uh, service. It is in some ways a utility for the United States. You know, it's not something that if it goes away, uh, we won't notice or we will be okay with. And as such, I think that privatization of the Postal Service uh, goes against what we expect and what we think of the Postal Service to be. Uh, yes, money should be spent to bail out the Postal Service so that it can continue to perform uh, those duties for which we love it. Matt, I mean, if people have an emotional attachment to the Post Office, isn't this something that we could afford to do as a country? I mean, you talk about that, you know, the obvious thing is to cut it back. But I mean, this is like anything else the government does. It's a matter of priorities. If it's a priority for the public to have six-day delivery, then why shouldn't taxpayers subsidize six-day delivery? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's sort of where I am on this. Like, if it was up If the U.S. government was currently facing some kind of incredibly hard fiscal constraint, right, we got to cut something, then I don't know, you know, maybe the mail could come four times a week. That sounds to me a lot better than cutting back on like education or basic infrastructure. Right now, we're in the opposite of that situation. Interest rates are incredibly low. Um, We have super high unemployment. Uh, You could just spend some more money and it would be a little inefficient to be running some somewhat empty trucks around to different neighborhoods. But if people like it, I mean, why not? Right. I mean, there's no like objective answer to the question of how much money should the government spend on playgrounds? Uh, They should spend, you know, more than none, uh, not so much to go bankrupt. But to an extent, it just depends. Like, how much do the voters want playgrounds? How much do they care? It seems to me that, you know, people like the Postal Service. Uh, We've got a lot of problems happening right now. And it would be pretty easy to just write them a check and defer this conversation until some future point. Is there room for innovation here that the post office is not doing because of its current structure? I mean, Rich notes correctly that a lot of uh, post offices in countries that we would think of as more left-wing than the U.S. have been privatized. And you even hear from progressives who don't want to privatize the post office. They want changes to its business model. I hear people say things like, you know, the post office should be allowed to offer banking services that would make money from that, that would subsidize the the postal business. Is there a good reason to think the post office would make money if we let it get into banking? Because that's also often described as a public utility that basically we want them to offer savings accounts for small deposits on more favorable terms than commercial banks. It's not clear to me that that's actually a solution to any 
of the post office's financial problems, even even if it might be useful to certain consumers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you really do have to think of that more in terms of that's a complement to shifting the post office to a public service model, right? Is you're going to say, OK, this is going to be subsidized at government expense. And then, well, why are we subsidizing it? It's not just because we like the uniforms, right? It's let's leverage these retail facilities to do something useful. We could solve the problem of the unbanked, do a bunch of other things through the Postal Service, I think without incurring any great costs. Uh, I don't think it makes sense to say, well, you're going to make up for the structural decline of, of mail. You know, one thing I want to note about the EU contrast, right, is that we have a very different labor relations model in the United States than in those European countries. If you were talking about a country where you had sort of strong sectoral bargaining and widespread unionization in all large firms, I don't think the stakes in postal service privatization would be perceived to be as high as they are now. In the United States, you have sort of firm-level bargaining, right? So the postal workers have some reasonably strong unions. They have a good contract for themselves. And so talking about shifting it into a private sector or being competed with UPS and Federal Express is, in effect, a lot a way of debating the labor relations paradigm sort of through the back door and comparing it to the situation in Sweden or Germany or these other kind of uh, strong sectoral bargaining countries, I think winds up missing a lot of what drives the argument. Rich, the context in which we're having this conversation about the post office and where the president has, you know, after more than three years in office, finally really gotten control of the post office with a majority of the appointments on the board that oversees it, uh, the appointment of a new postmaster general who is an ally of his, is that the, the president has this fixation on the rates that Amazon pays uh, for package shipping. Uh, and there's been a debate, I, I think, uh, you know, and I don't want to get into the technical details, but I think there's been a misinterpretation of some research about how much it actually costs the post office to deliver a package. But it's clear that the president's interest here is he doesn't like Jeff Bezos. He's mad about things that are published in the Washington Post, which is owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. And it's part of this pattern that we've seen of the president trying to use the regulatory power uh, of the of the federal government to punish people he perceives as his enemies. You know, he doesn't like CNN coverage, so he wants to try to block the AT&T Time Warner merger. Uh, we've seen just this week this purported executive order on social media uh, um, uh, moderation because he's upset about these labels that Twitter has put on certain tweets of his saying that their content is misleading. It, it really seems to me like something that that should bother conservatives more than it does. Conservatives are supposed to be for the, the rule of law and a level playing field for markets. And here we have the president using these powers like a toy to, you know, to, to, to punish companies that he's mad at. Yeah, I think his his threats against Amazon and his inveighing against Amazon are some of the, the worst things he's said. And obviously, there, there's a lot of competition on that list. And if we want to kind of tr transition over to the Twitter thing, I mean, this, this episode over the last week is just uh, one of the worst examples of Trump's misgovernance. You know, he, he tweets out these uh, horrible and malicious and false things about Joe Scarborough allegedly being involved and the death of a young woman in one of his district's offices when he was a congressman. There's understandably a firestorm about this. Twitter feels uh, compelled to do something and then fact checks kind of kind of weirdly uh, another Trump series of tweets about um, mail-in ballots and the risk of fraud. I think this was a mistake on the part of Twitter. I think it's kind of a morass and they shouldn't get into the, the fact checking uh, business. But then uh, Trump, you know, all, all in a rush, galloping off in all directions, wants to issue an executive order uh, pushing back against this um, that, in, in my view, is uh, absolutely the wrong policy direction, you know, towards giving regulators more say over these social media 
companies and it is is likely uh, meaningless and, and unenforceable. So it, it's just this this whole national psychodrama uh, that the president's dragged us through uh, for no good reason, except for he uh, was very upset about what he was seeing on, on Morning Joe every morning and wanted to say uh, the most vile thing he could about the host of the program. Christine, the, the thing that's or one thing that's sort of weird to me about these moves the president has made with regard to various companies is that there there are ideological arguments that some people in the Republican Party, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri being the most uh, identifiable one, have been making about, you know, conservatives should want more regulations on certain kinds of big companies, that there should be more scrutiny of the actions of big tech companies, that maybe we should have more antitrust scrutiny around mergers. And so I think that, you know, maybe there are people on the left who would like to be able to find a way to do some sort of bipartisan thing about more regulation. But the problem is that the way the president is deploying these tools, you know, he doesn't want to block, he didn't want to block the AT&T Time Warner merger because he's concerned about market power in the, you know, in the in the broadcast television industry. It's because he's mad about CNN. It doesn't form a basis for, you know, any sort of policy agenda. Right. That's true. I mean, this is kind of the problem. I mean, this is the problem with Trump as president and Trump's governance style, such as it is. Um, he's not interested in policy agendas. Uh, he's not interested in creating legislation for the good of the country. He's not necessarily interested in trying to regulate businesses so that they run more effectively or serve the American people better. Uh, he's interested in pursuing his own grudges, his own bizarre fascinations, uh, assuaging his own interests and ills. That's the only reason why he's talking about this sort of social media regulation, so that he can talk more. You know, I wish the president uh, would bring the same energy to, say, mourning the 100,000 coronavirus deaths that he does to mourning the fact that somebody said that a lie that he said was, in fact, perhaps maybe a lie and people should research it. Matt, uh, before we go, can you discern any policy agenda around the sort of, you know, the the president complains about what's called Section 230. This is a, the, a part of the Communications Decency Act that basically protects uh, platforms from if, you know, if Twitter doesn't write what's on Twitter, if somebody else posts on Twitter, you can't hold Twitter liable for defamation or variety of other things that people might misuse Twitter to do. And it's what allows social media uh, to have sort of the, the free-for-all that, that you have there. Um, is there a reform agenda around that if people are upset about that, you know, basically Twitter gets to make money even as other people go out there and do things like, you know, tell lies about Joe Scarborough? Um, Because it seems that, you know, a lot of what I hear about this from conservatives is incoherent. It's basically they're mad about Section 230, but then they they want, uh, they're mad about too much moderation. And yet if you take away those legal protections, I think there's even more pressure uh, on companies like Twitter uh, to to monitor what people are saying on their platform and delete things that they're concerned about. Because then Twitter has to worry about, you know, what if we get sued because the president defames somebody on our platform? Yeah, I mean, it would really depend what you've replaced it with. And I think, you know, conservative senators who have enjoyed tweeting about this have not been really clear what what their end state is. One, I think, coherent idea that I know Congress considered when they were working on the Communications Decency Act would be to say that these services have to operate as common carriers, right? Like, you can't sue the phone company if somebody uses telephones to slander you. Um, And you can't sue your ISP, Uh, you know, Comcast, whatever, something like that. The idea is they're just transmitting bits. Uh, And so you could say, well, if Twitter wants to have these liability protections, it would need to go back to the sort of pure reverse chronological opt-in feed, no suggestions, no algorithmic editing, things like that. I I don't think that's a 
crazy idea exactly. Um, but what you would be talking about is sort of crippling the social media industry qua industry, right, by forcing them to be much more sort of flat and, and less engaging than they currently are. Or you could try to, you know, come up with something where, as, as you were speculating, they have to moderate much more aggressively, uh, which I really don't think is what conservatives would like, uh, because it's like Donald Trump is frequently slandering people on Twitter. Um, he doesn't want to be shut down for that reason, but he could be if you made them more strictly liable. And then last, you have what I think is the real answer, which is that they don't want any particular policy change. They just sort of want the executives of YouTube and Twitter in particular to emulate Facebook and become more sensitive to what conservatives think about things and just do more stuff that Republican Party politicians like. Because um, you go back to this original fact check on Trump and the, the vote by mail thing. And, you know, I, I largely agree with the sentiment that Twitter was putting forward there. But this is obviously a thing that people disagree about. They could have decided they think the conservative view on vote by mail is correct and that what they ought to do is slap fact-checking warning labels on liberals. Uh, they didn't do that. It's a private company. They can do whatever they want and they could decide to just sort of become much more right-wing in the way they approach these questions. Matt Iglesias is senior reporter and co-founder of Vox and host of The Weeds. Matt Iglesias, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We've reached that time once again for our famed left, right, and center rants featuring pet peeves from across the political spectrum. Rich Lowry, it's your soapbox. The last couple of months, we've heard a lot about how supposedly threatening anti-lockdown protesters are, even though, as far as I'm aware, none of them has actually committed an act of violence. Yet, Minneapolis, we've had protesters break stuff, loot, burn down buildings, and many of the same people have professed to be so disturbed by the anti-lockdown protest and said that their tactics discredited their cause have barely batted an eyelash. Christine Embo, what's your rant? As you could probably tell in the first segment, I'm tired. We're tired. It's exhausting to hear that, well, there are no structural problems in policing. We just have to let things play out. When we know that the cop who killed George Floyd had 12 prior complaints about use of force, it's infuriating to hear people denigrated as thugs uh, to talk about how they're protesting wrong while white supremacists apparently are very fine people and nuts with guns parading around Michigan are just protesters. Rich, what does a good protest look like to you? Would it be Colin Kaepernick on one knee quietly? Because the right and the president seem to have a problem with that. Would it be a strongly worded letter? Because Martin Luther King Jr. tried that one and he was assassinated. I have many outlets for my personal rage, I'm a columnist, I'm on this podcast, and I still want to scream. Can you imagine being voiceless? It's critical for people to see the gravity of what Black Americans are living with. How do you expect their rage to find an outlet? What should they be doing? Let's leave it there. Thanks to Rich Lowry, Christine Emba, and Matt Iglesias. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Fay. Our technical director is J.C. Swadek. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. I'm Josh Barrow. Thanks for joining us, and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. 
Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 